Hi everyone, this is Karen Becker from Acuity Brands, and welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We've created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're so happy to have you once again this week. This is Lindsay. And Kira. And uh, yeah, we're just excited to, I, it, last week was the week that we officially let everyone know that we were doing this podcast and it's been so fun to just see the responses. Um, so thanks to you all who are coming back. And it's always a funny thing. I'm getting used to the fact that we record these a few weeks ahead and then we, you know, publish <laughs> them. But for full, full transparency out there, <laughs> when you're hearing this, it's a couple of weeks late, um, but it's just been so cool to see um, how many people are excited. I've actually been, by the way, a shout out to the number of uh, men that I have gotten um, that, that have reached out and said that they're listening. And uh, I just think that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear it. And, um, you know, it, it we said it in the first episode, but in case you're just joining us, uh, I, I think this, this, the stories of women's leadership are not just for women, you know, they're really uh, uh, ones that we want everyone to hear and um, we need all the allies we can get in this world and all of the various fights. Uh, so, so thanks to all of you uh, listeners out there who do not identify as a woman. We are so happy to have you and uh, hope that you stay with us. So yeah, Kira, what's up? How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm completely used to shelter in place now. <laughs> I've really gotten used to it. And I'm also feeling really positive about all of the conversations that the pandemic seemed, seems to have elicited. I think there's a lot of interesting conversation going on, not only about how we can deal with this crisis, but also how it relates to others, in particular climate. And I think those parallels are really interesting and and actually quite um positive which is sort of a weird thing to say but they but I, I feel like there's a lot of positive things coming out of that discussion which is inspiring yeah, yeah totally i'm i'm feeling that too i actually well, i was saying just before we started the recording that i'm uh witnessing right now a, a mayday protest <laughs> parade here in oakland i live on a big street um, that is already pretty noisy um, but right now the cars are, are sort of going by it's, so it's not a human, it's not like a body process, it's basically cars driving, um, mm -hmm. in sort of a procession. Um, and it's just, you know, it just reminds me of that thing that, that we all try to know and try to act on about being citizens, not just on the day that you vote, but on every other day of the year and what that looks like to really participate in trying to use your voice to think about and to express uh, what kind of world you want to create, you know? And so it, it is, it does feel like that's starting to be more of what people talk about or what's in the news or, you know, I feel positive about that uh, too, especially watching uh, all of these folks. Uh, I guess a lot of them are port workers here in Oakland, mm -hmm. um, you know, getting out and, and fighting for, you know, the way they want to be treated in the world. It's, it's, uh, it's inspiring. I, I sort of wish I was down there in my car, you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's great to see. 
Yeah, and I think we're used to it too. The you know, get being in the realm of uh, <laughs> the the sheltering in place thing. I think we finally have enough soap. That that was a. <laughs> all of our we have flat we have a, a source for flour it's these kinds that's of good. things yeah <laughs> that's, that's the big one yeah 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 um well i'm glad i'm glad you're doing well i i wish i don't know do you have any pieces that you want to recommend for our listeners that you've been reading that are getting you excited about climate and things like that i well I, uh, interesting i've i have been listening to emily atkins podcast series about connecting COVID 19 and climate um she did a six um episode series about that topic and i found that really i have found that really really interesting um so i would recommend that um i don't know if you saw that piece in the new york times about defensive pessimists no oh cool jennifer senior wrote how uh, it, it was really about this type of person, but she basically is about how we're going to need our Eeyores at this moment. Um, the Eeyores are having a moment, I think. Um, and, and how being, a, I mean, I, I don't know, a lot of people working in climate are probably already defensive pessimists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it's an interesting worldview right now where we really, I mean, the pandemic sort of demands that we think defensively about what the, like the worst possible outcomes while we're learning still about the virus and everything. And it strikes me that that is, um, a pretty powerful way to think about climate change impact given its broad um, impacts and and all of those things. So I, that's another piece. Jennifer Senior wrote it for the New York Times um, sometime a few days ago. Um, yeah. The days are running together. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. But yeah, I, I think that's such an important point. I've, I think we all, um, especially the past few years, have really grappled with what it means to be um, in the climate fight and to balance that sense of um you know fear and pessimism and anxiety and all of those things mm -hmm. with the fact that we wouldn't be doing what we do every day if it weren't for the fact that we think we can win this um yeah and, and yeah but it can be it can certainly be hard um and actually that is probably a very good way to introduce our guest for today Gail Vittori. Gail is an incredible leader who has been working um, for 30 plus years um, as a catalyst in our industry. And I, you know, I can't think of anyone better to have with us to talk about um, what it means to persist and to balance all of that um, optimism and pessimism. Uh, so welcome, Gail. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks so much for being with us. So, so Gail, Kira's going to talk a little bit about all the things that you, our listeners, should know about Gail before we start, because we just decided Gail needs, you know, if, if you're not familiar with Gail and her work, um, and you should be, and, uh, and it's um, just really worth stating a little bit, because Gail has worked as a catalyst at, in, at many layers, local, state, national, um, and has particularly had a focus on the intersection of green building and human health. It really, before it was cool. I, I hate to say it that way, but I think that's a pretty good way of describing you, Gail, that like, I don't know, you've just been talking about these issues and um, you've always had such a strength in it, but um, it's been it's been a while. So, so Kira, do you want to kind of give sure. like the, yeah, the, the 
better. So, I mean, so first I should say that Gail is the co-director of the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems. And we'll talk a little bit more about all of what that, um, I mean, I I would call it an organization, but it's practically a cultural epicenter. (laughs) It's actually much more than an organization in many ways. Um, But I wanted to mention a few other things because there's so many things Gail has touched. Um, In 1989, Gail developed the framework for what Um, became the City of Austin's Green Builder Program, and that was the first green building program in the U.S. Um, And then in 2001, she convened the Green Guide for Healthcare, um, which really was a major revolution in healthcare design, uh, construction, and operations. And that's that's where this topic of health is so we're really seeing um, that topic come up so much lately. Um, You know, understanding health and public health and in a global context, really it's to me is really one of the other connections that we're seeing in this pandemic as it relates to um, green building and, and uh, climate. Uh, Gail also served on the US uh, Green Building Council Board of Directors from 2002 to 2010. She was chair in 2009 and she is vice chair of the Health Product Declaration Collaborative's Board of Directors. I could go on and on. She was the first and only woman woman to receive the Hanley Award for Vision and Leadership in Sustainability. As you can see, it's a it's a wide ranging um, number of involvement at a number of levels, and really the influence that Gail has had sort of on the movement through all those kinds of organizations has really been unparalleled, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's not even a matter of opinion. It's totally. It's a thing. Um, and yeah, so Gail, we want to we want to stop talking and let you start talking about all of this work. And I, I think it's probably the right thing to do to just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you got involved um, in the movement, what your path has been uh, to get here. Yeah, well, thanks, Lindsay and, and Kira for the opening remarks. And I, you know, I think for many of us, it has not been a straight line to get us involved in the things that we're doing now. Um, I can go back to um, more than, believe it or not, 40 years ago, um, soon having uh, moved to Austin and stumbled across the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems. I had no idea what it was, but I was encouraged by a friend at the time to visit. And for me, it really opened up a, an awareness of what I had found to be missing in what I thought my path was going to be, which was some connection between economics, which I studied in college, and politics. Um, the missing piece for me was really connecting to a place and to a platform based on basic needs, which I found very well articulated in the work that was happening at the center at the time. So we're, we're going back to 1979. And I, um, as a result of that, just sort of shifted my pursuit of a quote career and decided that what I really needed to do was step back and listen and learn and really observe some facets of life that I don't think I had let myself really connect to. And let me just say it was actually 77 when that happened. It was 79 when I formally joined the center uh, on staff. Um, so in, in many ways, I would give a, a big level of what I'm doing now to continuing to sort of operate with a fair amount of a beginner's mind, which I really love conceptually, because for me, it's meant a process of inquiry 
and readiness to discover and not believe that the answers are necessarily there. Um, and I've had the benefit over many engagements with different people, organizations, um, catalyzing some things that um, seem to be missing from the complement of activities in play to undertake those really with a beginner's mind. Um, so when we started to have the conversation about the big missing piece of health in the early um, 2000s and recognizing that really among the people that we were associating with, none of them were engaged with the healthcare sector. And so as we were beginning to articulate, you know, what is this missing piece about? How do we start to get our hands around it? Um, it became very evident that it would be a really an ideal point of entry to engage the healthcare sector, which at the time represented about 18% of the gross domestic product, in the discovery of what green building meant for that sector. Um, and I, I have to say that for someone who didn't have any background in healthcare, I nevertheless had an opportunity to engage with people who at that time were very much experts in that field, um, whether it was through healthcare systems or practitioners of architecture, engineering. Um, I was asked by Gary Cohen, who some folks might know as one of the founders of Healthcare Without Harm, to write a paper on green building and the healthcare sector. That was in the year um, 2000. And I, you know, I had to say to him, I'm really going to approach this like a research project. I don't know it. But um, clearly, it's something that will be a powerful contribution to a field that was still really trying to understand what its edges were and what its frontiers were. Um, so I went on forward with that paper, and it was presented at a conference um, in San Francisco, um, considered the first environmentally focused conference for the healthcare sector called Setting Healthcare's Environmental Agenda. And um, that suddenly became a moment when I realized I was a holder of putting together pieces of information that perhaps hadn't been done in quite the same way before. Um, so you may each have had times in your life where um, you might be identified as an expert and never really saw yourself as an expert. That was really a moment for me and it was extremely humbling. At the same time, it also spoke to what it means to be on the front edge of something that was clearly necessary, essential, important to get done. And um, I think if there was one thing I try to do a lot in all the different realms that I work in is connecting the dots. Um, try not to repeat anything that's already been done. Understand what that body of work is, where the knowledge rests, and how to take advantage and build on that. And that has, I think, really served me well in the various capacities that I've um, had opportunities to participate in. Yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by that. I, I, and your use of the term beginner's mind to mm -hmm. me is so evocative. I've been sort of sitting here and pulling that apart and, and, and as it relates to the leadership that I've witnessed that you have in particular. And I think part of it is that it's this combination of humility and uh, the sense that you, you need to know what you're talking about in order to sort of, you know, you, you are eager to learn and to, and to establish an expertise and, you know, uh, to, to be able to have an opinion about something. And there's this, um, I, I don't think that we would be nearly as far along as we are in 
the in tackling the issue of, of health and buildings if it weren't for you having the number one that outsider's perspective of coming in and saying okay well i'm assuming some you know there are probably some rules about that you know like there's probably some people who know about this i'm there's probably some stuff and to some degree finding you know a lack of of progress um a lack of um you know effective structures to make sure that spaces are healthy and then you kind of said okay well i know enough now to make a difference and fill the gaps it's just um I, I just respect that. And I hope, you know, I think for some of our listeners as well, we've all had some of these moments where you start to look around and realize nobody knows, you know, that you, you sort of imagine that there was more expertise than there was on something. And you're starting to become someone who has expertise and you're not really sure what to do with it, you know, and I, sure. I feel like you navigated that so well um, in becoming an expert and a leader. Yeah, and I think, you know, another part, and, and specifically to the, the area of, of health, um, again, by no means would I call myself a health expert, um, certainly in 2000, nowhere close to that. However, I recognize that it was a huge piece that was missing from the conversation, not just because we weren't engaging the healthcare sector in the design, construction, and operations of facilities with green building being one of the bases for making those decisions, but more broadly, we had implicitly, I would say, be working in the area of advancing health, but it was not explicit. And I think the missing part was that, in fact, it was not explicit. And so when we convened the Green Guide for Healthcare and pulled together our committee, and that was focused on um, really trying to pull together a, a body of strategies customized for the healthcare sector, um, but we saw it as a stepping stone for other sectors. But we very carefully pulled out a, an explicit health dimension and health intention associated with every strategy in the Green Guide for Healthcare. And I think what that did is, is was a huge aha moment, is that it didn't matter what category we were working in, every single one had an influence and had a consequence related to human health. And so, you know, at the time it was, I'd say, considered fringe to be talking about the things that we were talking about. I think some people considered that work to be controversial for a variety of reasons. Um, I think in the context of healthcare, hard to say that the intention should not be to create healthy environments for the people who occupy those buildings, whether they be patients or um, deliverers of medical care. Um, but I, I, I think that it was important to make the point that our everyday decisions as designers, as people engaged in the built environment, were essentially creating the conditions of health in the environments that we live in, whether they be indoors or outdoors. And I think as that got articulated more and got further research in terms of the depth of it, um, you know, you had, I can't remember the green bill that was, several years back, seven or eight years, there was, um, I think, a Surgeon General or someone with a high position from the federal government at one of the Green Build plenaries talking about, you know, that community of people convened at Green Build were essentially public health practitioners. And I think that was a powerful moment when we mm -hmm. all realized that we were, in fact, creating the conditions that were conducive for health or not. And mm -hmm. I try to continue to use that lens in the projects that I'm working on and encourage other people to do it is the moment in time when you can basically put up a lens in front of your eyes to say, is this 
promoting health or is it adverse to health? And um, it's kind of a simple thing, but it, it injects that very intentional determination to draw from a body of knowledge, and there's a lot out there, um, to begin to point the way to move towards more decisions that are health promoting as opposed to fewer. And I think we all have those opportunities in every project that we work on. Gail, I think it's so interesting how that, that notion of health as a basis for designing buildings, and which is sort of analogous to the notion of you know, human settle, all human settlement having human and ecological health as its basis. Um, I just think that's so powerful. And I'm not sure that, um, I mean, now that it has become more understood and it's more heralded in, in design now, I, I think at, at that time it was completely not seen as, you know, as the primary driver that way. And so the notion that you would embed health intention in each piece of it like that, I just think that's very powerful. Um, it's really interesting to think back to when it was not as understood as that that was really the purpose of it, really, and that every it's sort of a it's not it's a it's not just do no harm. It's it's making it the basis of of what you're creating. Exactly, and and I think I think that um, you know now there's a lot of emphasis on transparency. It's something I've been very involved with for many years, and as very specifically now serving on the board of the Health Product Declaration Collaborative, I think we really need to have solid data to enable us to make those determinations. You know, is a material healthy or not? What's our basis for understanding that? And until we have transparency and disclosure relative to the chemical ingredients of materials and products, it's very much a kind of a wild west. I mean, mm -hmm. you're making a decision based on limited, if any, information. So in the same way that I don't think any of us could imagine going to the store and buying a product and not being able to see an ingredient list, you know, mm -hmm. that's where we still are. And I know that that analogy of the, of the animal crackers has been on the screen for years and years and years. Um, we're getting better. We have more than 6,000 HPDs now, which is fantastic. Um, but there's still a gap in terms of believing that we can fully be confident of knowing what those chemical ingredients are and making an informed decision. So I think that more and more needs to become just part of what we assume to be the available data that for anyone in the profession, anyone in the public who wants to know, we should all have the right to know. Absolutely. For, maybe for some of our listeners who are not as familiar, Gail, could you explain what an HPD is and just to be just so people can if there are a few that maybe aren't completely clear about that. Sure. So the health product declaration is a standard format that identifies the chemical ingredients of right now it's focused on the construction sector. Uh, so of building materials and products and has a um, basis for disclosure that can be third party certified or not. Um, it is also correlating those chemicals with established knowledge regarding the health uh, consequences of chemical exposure specific to that list of chemicals. So it's, it's, a, it's a format that um, you know, manufacturers, I would say today, um, are really embracing and that's evidenced by just the number of manufacturers that are pursuing HPDs now as part of their standard practice for their line of products. Um, I think it's something that certainly has been catalyzed with Lead V4 having a credit 
that provides a way to contribute to achieving that, one of those building product disclosure optimization, it's hard one to say, BPDO um, credits, um, with health product declaration being one of the bases for that, along with cradle to cradle and um, green screen and declare. So I think the whole ecosystem of material health in the context of transparency has matured a lot and having a reliable basis for knowing the answer to the question is um, something that I think many of us have been waiting for for a long time. And I think the industry, um, interestingly, I think as much on the manufacturer side as on the more the advocacy side, the user side, uh, it has really embraced. And so that I think is a huge win when you see that level of convergence from what, you know, at times have been more bodies in conflict. I think this is something that folks are standing behind very much with a, with a shared voice of, of um, it's the right time and it's the right tool to, to see that through in the context of the ecosystem of the other uh, tools as well. I, I guess I, I'm curious about it, Gail, because you have, you're, you're, so, you're always so like fair and magnanimous about these things, but, and I just, <laughs> want to know like has it been frustrating the pace of it do you feel like it's going well Do, does it feel like you know progress is being made you know specifically i mean on sort of health and transparency of products uh, like how, how do you how does it feel emotionally to you having gone through this process and and does it you know are you is it starting to feel like you know you're you're winning <laughs> Well, I think we're all winning. I think I think there's a collective recognition, and you know, it could be that one of the silver linings of the the COVID nineteen pandemic is that we're all going to become more aware and conscientious about every part of our buildings, um, including the materials that we surround ourselves with. So, you know, five years ago, I think there were maybe twenty five or thirty HPDs. So, in the course of five years, to see the number being six thousand and the monthly add to that being several hundred um, and increasing, I think is a sign that, as I was saying, you know, it's really, it's really not battling the issue anymore. You have um, a manufacturing sector that has really, I think, recognized that this is important for them. And, you know, one of the benefits, I would say, um, as, as much as disclosure might be a little bit frightening to manufacturers given proprietary information and so on, is that for many of them, they find out stuff about their products that they didn't know because it's pushing them to go through their supply chain and reveal what in fact are the chemical ingredients of the products that they're selling. And so to the extent that um, you know, they're seeing that and are moved by maybe discovering that there's a problematic you know, chemical of concern that shows up in the supply chain, that's a signal for them and an opportunity to say, let's take a look and see what we can do to advance our technical proficiency so we have a very solid basis for substitution. Um, some folks might be familiar with the term regrettable substitution, which is, you know, you take one thing out and you put something else in thinking it's better, but in fact, it could be similarly problematic or differently problematic. And so again, one of the benefits of having the disclosure of chemical ingredients is you can do a much better job at screening out the products that have chemicals of concern. And so as you're going through a substitution process, 
you're ensuring that as you pull something out, because it's clearly, you know, it could be lead, cadmium, mercury, problematic chemical, um, formaldehyde, you are introducing one that is going to be, um, because of your ability to see what's in, what's in it, right? Not have those similar problems. Um, we know when the, you know, the, the bisphenol A that played out, it was very dramatic, um, probably going back 10 years. Um, you know, one of the chemicals that was substituted for bisphenol A was another bisphenol that was also problematic. And so, you know, we know through experience that it's so important to really have that depth of understanding. So we're making smart decisions as we're moving through a process of ensuring that our material palette is healthier and safer. Yeah, Gail, I, I really believe that. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the uh, sad but uh, hopeful aspects of the pandemic that I've been noticing. Someone actually wrote about this, and I don't, I wish I knew who it was. It was something I was reading about the idea that we are more in tune with our bodies uh, than we have been in, uh, in, in, a, in a long time. And that hopefully that makes us more attentive to um, what our bodies need to thrive, you know, and um, what we're exposing our bodies to and makes us ask some of these harder questions uh, more intuitively the way that, that uh, you have always done. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree. And I, you know, it reminds me of something I used to think about a lot, which is um, going back to the healthcare sector and our collective experience as a society in being so accepting of such a deficient human experience in our healthcare facilities, right? I mean, it's like we used to talk about close your eyes and imagine you're walking into a hospital and what do you feel, right? And for most people, it's fear, it's depression, it's being scared, as opposed to what we know a healthcare facility can be. And, and so I, you know, I talk about how we've been so complacent to accept something that is so deficient. And, you know, as you're saying that, Lindsay, about, you know, connecting us to our body, I think we all have an opportunity to, to say, this is, you know, this doesn't make us feel good. And as we think about our opportunities to influence our built environment, and as a result of that, influence the, 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 the broader environment, um, you know, how are we more effective in our collective voice to say, this is really what we need. You know, these buildings don't work for us anymore. And now that we have some buildings, and if I can talk to you about healthcare buildings that are really showing the way. And, and for me, one of the most uh, meaningful projects was a children's hospital in Austin that was the first lead platinum hospital in the world. There are still people from all over the world that come to visit that hospital because they want to know how did they do it? How is it different from the facilities we've been building and designing? And the fact that it exists, I think, is the most powerful statement of not only is it possible, but because it exists, we now have a body of knowledge mm -hmm. that begins to be able to describe all of the benefits that accrue from making those early decisions in a design that really is about people and health um, and not so much driven by technology. Yeah, uh, I love everything about that. Um, I hope to be able to visit that place someday. That sounds 
Amazing. Um, yeah, there's nothing like being in the building to inspire you to think about how we change the way we build. Um, okay, well, I want to ask, a, uh, I want to change subject a little bit and ask you a question that I um, think a lot of people would love to hear, which is that you have this career of having been uh, in a lot of leadership roles in other organizations, boards and committees and these kinds of things where you play a key role in um, helping organizations basically govern themselves well. And you've always done that with a lot of grace. And so I just was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you've balanced, uh, in particular, your strong beliefs and sense of the need for you know, movement um, with what it means to play a role in these larger organizations. Well, I, you know, I think, I think there's really no playbook on how to do that right. I think part of it is to get a sense early on as, as you become, say, on serving on a board, as I, as I did on both the U.S. Green Building Council Board and the Green Business Certification Inc. Board, to first understand that it's a mission that you believe in. Um, I, I, I think that that's, that that's essential. And what is your unique opportunity um, perhaps shared with others on the board and others who serve in other capacities within the organization to advance elements of opportunity to really evolve and grow the magnitude of influence of that organization. So I, um, I think in the, in the years when I served on the U.S. Green Building Council board, um, I was quite uh, involved with various initiatives regarding health and materials. And I, I know that it was um, sometimes viewed as being um, in conflict with the interests of the organization. And I was very clear, and I think the way I handled it was just to dis disclose a conflict, um, to not have it be something that I wanted to sort of hide or, or be um, not candid about um, and to allow the board to make a determination of whether or not I would be able to continue to engage in the dialogue and potentially a vote or whatever. Um, and, I, and I just came to feel that that is sort of for me, my personal tra transparency and disclosure. Um, I found that way better to put it on the table and let it be discussed and then make a decision as a group than um, try to sort of not, not reveal it. Um, and I think that that, even to the point when I was chair of the organization, probably was really a, a good decision. I don't know that I thought about it that much. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And um, I think it enabled me to continue to be viewed as someone who was responsibly managing the responsibilities that I had within that organization, if that makes sense. Um, so I think part of it is to, is to also understand as you're wanting you know you're there because you're you you've had some way to sort of distinguish yourself right i mean that's how you end up serving on a board so you're there for a reason and um i think to be comfortable with that and to know that it's important to hold on to your voice not to lose it but to also understand that the appropriate way to express your voice may be shaped with a long view in mind so I think I had that always as a kind of a, a, a way to gauge how I would move forward with expressions of the issues that I felt were very important um, because I wanted to continue to be effective within the context of the organization that 
um, I believe has, did have, does have um, the ability to do the kind of market transformation that it was really created to, to make happen. Um, and uh, so to the extent that, that those things were able to coexist, my leadership along with holding onto my voice and my views, I think um, is also a tribute to, the, to the, the leadership of those organizations. I did not get snuffed out. And um, I think, uh, you know, it had an influence and, and, you know, I was able to express it in, in, in various ways through working on the Lead for Healthcare Committee, um, through helping to bring in some people to begin dialogues about, you know, what is material health? What are persistent chemicals? What is the precautionary principle? Because I, I felt like we all needed a, an education, a kind of a primer on those basic concepts because they just were not very evident in the work at the time that, that was guiding our decisions. So, so I had these opportunities to, to help to bring in voices and knowledge that I think have been very beneficial in advancing the understanding. And, and I think today, you know, we're dealing with a whole other level of just magnitude of the issue of pandemic um, and, and how we're gonna need to really kind of retool and reboot and reset so that we're as ready as we can be to ensure that when we talk about a healthy building, it's healthy in all the ways that um, we've understood it to date and now particularly healthy in the context of understanding the challenges of a, of a global pandemic. That's so interesting um, because, you know, Gail, I think that leadership, that's really a lot of people really, I think that's where you are most visible to many people um, is through that. And of course, those organizations, Green Building Council in particular, but others of them have been such a part of um, the market transformation that you mentioned. Um, and so I'm just wondering in that context, do you see yourself as part of, you know, like a movement? I mean, do you think of it that way? And what makes you feel that way or, or not? I, I mean, I think the movement is, is, is so broad. Um, I think I would say, yes, I'm, I'm a part of it. I've been a contributor. I've been a participant. I look to others for leadership. I've had some opportunities to help to pave some pathways. And I think to me, it's always been about this really big recognition of the power of collective action. This is not something we can do by ourselves. And people go in and out of maybe a level of visibility in their work. I think we have so many pathways now and, and particularly, you know, today I'd say um, something we tried to do very much in the Green Guide for Healthcare to, to recognize the importance of facility managers. Um, you know, that's a, that's a group that is essential to be able to achieve the benefits of what we know now today to be important to create a healthy building. And so um, I would just say there's, there's lots of heroes. And I, I think when I, you know, look around, um, you know, what you've brought in, both of you, Lindsay and Kira, and so many people, um, so many women, specifically, um, and that we're here today because we're standing on so many shoulders. Um, whether we identify with a movement per se or not, I think we are collectively advancing this very, very important work. Well, speaking of, of those um, others that in that collective advancement, I mean, who are you most inspired by these days in terms of leaders? These could be climate or built environment or, or really anyone. You know, it's a tough thing to, to, to draw attention to, to one person, but I, I will say that I think it's a, a poignant story about Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish 
girl, I guess still, right, who <laughs> singularly brought attention to an issue in a way that hadn't really happened before. And I think, and, and among young people particularly, but, but around the world, um, and touched so many people's lives. And so, you know, as we think about what each of us has an opportunity to do, I think she is an important reminder of what we are all able to do individually, how we all can raise our hand and say, stop, or go, or I'm in, or I'm out, and what that means. And so I think of Greta as really just symbolic of what one person has the ability to do as a change agent, but that the change actually happens when it becomes embraced by a much more voluminous body of people. Right. Um, and, you know, actually, that reminds me of something else, is, which is this notion of things being more mainstreamed, you know, like this notion of health as a basis for design. Um, and I was wondering, sorry, I'm kind of jumping around here, but it, you know, as it has become more understood as a key element in design and construction, the, the human health component, I mean, do you see that there's a, a tension then between, between sort of a, a commodification of health versus the common good? Yeah, I think it's a challenge. I think it's definitely a challenge of, of ensuring that health is not commodified, that it is something that is a public good, that it is something that becomes, in a way, the, the, the base, basic standard of practice. And, and I think, you know, if the, if the outcome of all of this is that we have a tier of healthy buildings that are available and accessible to the elite, and then we have sort of the business as usual buildings that are not, we've already seen such a glaring bearing of inequities in what's playing out right now um, societally with a pandemic. Um, we need to ensure that our knowledge and our learnings from this is transcending every part of society and that, you know, whether it's our schools, our homes, offices, healthcare buildings, um, you know, public buses, every part of it needs to have a kind of a moment of reset. And we will not really have won this if it becomes something viewed as available to an elite group. So I think that that is very important and how we get the playbooks out so that they become a basis for evaluating and assessing the, the broad portfolio of buildings across the board, across sectors. Um, I think that is one of the opportunities that you know could happen on neighborhood, municipal, state, federal level, everyone has an opportunity to act. And um, this is really a time for being all in on this. Um, no one really should be left behind. Yeah, that's a very inspiring note to end on, Gail, just to think, I, I think it's um, fair to say that while many of us can easily uh, get behind the notion that everyone deserves a healthy environment every every human being every every species really um that um it's a lot more work to make sure that that um to, to make that happen especially in our world today where that is certainly not the case um so thank you again for all of your work and for your leadership and for joining us today thanks so much i so enjoyed catching up and having this chance to have this chat yeah, um, well, hopefully we left everyone with some some thoughts and some motivation for these 
difficult times. Um, but yeah, thanks everyone for joining us this week. Thanks, Kira. I hope you have a good next few days. Indeed. Thanks, Lindsay, and you too. Have a great weekend. Yeah, and um, that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Take care. Talk to you next time.